If you were here Friday night, then you know that we spent some time talking about the betrayal of Jesus Christ. And whether you were here or not, you know the story of Scripture and how that works. You know that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, but we spent some time exploring how each of us, how there were others there in the situation that betrayed Jesus, and how each of us in our own way also betrayed Jesus. Whether it's as Judas did, or whether it's as the other disciples did, and I'm sure there's a few other ways that we have done that's not listed there in the story. But the end of that story, as we reflected on the fact that Jesus had told them, in fact, he had told them three times that this was going to happen, that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to be given over. He was going to be handed over. It's the word for betrayal, the same word. He was going to be betrayed or handed over or, to the, or delivered to the chief priests and to the Jewish leaders. And they were, in fact, going to hand him over to the Gentile leaders and where he was going to be killed. He was going to be mocked, spit upon, uh, beat up. He was going to be uh, crucified in the end. He was going to be killed. And they were told that three times. And if you were here Thursday night, you remember, how did they respond? How did the disciples respond all three times that you read that Jesus told them specifically what was going to happen to them? Somebody who was here Friday night, or perhaps if you weren't here and you know the answer. How did they respond? What's that? Uh, They rebuked him. That was the first time Peter looked at Jesus and said, You shouldn't say stuff like that. The other two times, what did they do right after Jesus told them very clearly this is what's going to happen? They responded from a human perspective. You were going to go on. Go on. Yeah, they began to think, how great am I? They began to ask, can I be besides you, Jesus? Can I be the right and the left? They began to, as Brent told us, they began to continue to have their mind set on things of man, not on things of God. That's what Jesus said to Peter after he rebuked him. He said, Peter, actually said, Satan, get behind me. But he said, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. I would tell you, this is what we said Friday night, I would tell you that that is, in a broad category, that is how we betray Jesus over and over and over again in our lives. By setting our mind on the things of men and how the world works things out and how we think it should go instead of the things of God. Which, of course, if you want to know the mind of God, how how do you know that? How do you find out what the mind of God is? How do you know what God wants and what, what what he's like and what he has in mind for us? How do you find that out? You have to read here. You have to read this. And then you have to obey and and respond in faith. For even the disciples, if they knew the Old Testament, they still missed some of those pieces, right? And again, we see them clearly because we know the end. I can assure you there are things that you were going through that someday you will look back and see clearly what you got wrong. And you could have think to yourself, how did I not see that? It was right here. But you haven't seen the end yet. But the ultimate result of that was... This picture that I have up here was the cross. It was where we were left off on Friday night. If you were here Friday, it's where we left off. And we thank Jesus for it. We thank God for what he did through that. But still, if we would have stopped there, if we did not have today, then that would be a miserable way to think of things. That's great that Jesus died for my sins, but apparently it cost him everything so much that he is nothing anymore, that he's dead, he's gone. What hope do I have out of that? You see, in all three of those cases, when Jesus said, here's what's going to happen, it appears to me by the way the disciples acted, and by the way most of, again, let's not throw the disciples under the bus, by the way, most of us act when things don't go the way we think they should. 
that we forgot that there was a little piece at the end of every one of those times when Jesus began to say, hey, let me tell you clearly what's going to happen. Do you remember what he said? He said, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And when we get there, the Son of Man, I, will be handed over to the chief priests. And they will condemn me. And they will hand me over to the, uh, to the Romans, to the Gentiles. And I will be mocked. I will be spit upon. I will be bruised and whipped. And I will be crucified. I will be killed. But there's one piece that they seem to have forgotten a bit of. Because that was not actually the end of what he said. For what did he say all three times? This part right there. And after three days, he will rise. That, my friends, is why we have today. Why we can talk about today. Why we have Easter. Why we talk about Resurrection Sunday. It's because we don't talk about Jesus just here. We talk about Jesus like this. That he's resurrected. That something changed. That something that completely changed people's lives back then happened. And I would tell you today, completely changes our lives. It ought to change our lives completely. Let me just read to you what the Bible says about that event. I'm going to read from Luke this morning. If you want to follow along, that would be great. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. We're going to find ourselves in a few other passages as well. But this is where we're going to start. Because for them... They stopped, just like we did on Friday night. They stopped with Jesus on the cross, coming down from that cross, being laid in a tomb, and all of their hopes being crushed. Everything going sideways, or even worse. But it says in verse 1 of chapter 24 of of the book of Luke, but on the first day of the week, that's why it's today on a Sunday, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, they being some women, taking the spices they had prepared, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, as you and I would be too. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were, excuse me, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, that, by the way, is tied, or we should tie it back, at least spiritually speaking, tie it back to Jesus' statement to Peter. Why do you have your mind set on the things of men, not the things of God? That is the distinction, by the way. The things of men is death. The things of God is life. Why do you look for the living among the dead? That's Jesus saying, why is your mind set on the things of man and not of God? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you. You see, Jesus had told them every single time that he told them what was going to happen. He said at the end, but I'm going to rise again. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, They told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. And we know, we're not going to have time this morning to go into all this because we've got other stuff we're going to talk about. But we know that their lives from that moment changed. Now, they didn't change in the blink of an eye, which gives us, I think, some encouragement because our lives don't always change. Sometimes they do. But our lives don't always change in the blink of an eye, do they? When we first began to believe in Jesus Christ and think that just maybe God had loved me enough, God had loved you enough that he would forgive all of your sins, that there was in fact, I mean the truth was that you can't do anything to earn your salvation and in fact you don't need to because he already paid for it. When we first began to believe that, most of us did not just immediately have our lives be completely different where we were like, we don't, we get every, everything fits now. We make 
everything makes sense, and we, we just don't have any problems anymore, right? That's not the story of our lives. Theirs didn't either. But from that moment, it began to change significantly. It began to be altered significantly. We know that as they waited, as they kind of went back and forth, they saw Jesus several times, and then he ascended, and then they waited some more, and then the day of Pentecost came, and then the Holy Spirit fell on them, and then things really changed, because for the first time, God did not send his Spirit for occasions, for moments of time, where he said, the Spirit of the Lord came upon someone to do a specific task, and then left again. But from that point on, Jesus' words came true. It's good for you that I leave, for when I do, the, Holy, the God will spend a comfort of the Holy Spirit to you, and he will take up residence inside of you, and that's not a temporary thing. But for today, I want to bring us back to the fact that what began all of that, what began all of that changing their lives, willing to go through the most difficult and brutal circumstances in the face of all odds, in the face of all opposition, in the face... Think of what we've been studying in Acts. Those of you from Riverview, we've been studying in Acts over and over again. Paul walks into cities, and there's people that want to kill him. In fact, there's people that try to kill him. They stone him. They leave him for the dead. He stands, or he wants to go into the middle of a huge amphitheater where everyone is chanting for... How long was it? Two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Something changed in that man, right? And it began, I want to point to this little phrase here because the angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus told you this was going to happen. And it says that when he reminded them, they remembered his words. This, brothers and sisters, listen, please. This must be the bedrock for us. Jesus has done it. We proclaim that. We say we believe it. But you and I both know, and not just both because it's all of us in the whole room, we all know that things come in our lives, things happen where that, is, that wavers, that's hard. We, we've said it. We have a hard time leading our hearts to that place. And the answer is in this little verse right here. Suddenly, the women at the tomb who were perplexed, who were frightened, who couldn't figure out what was going on, suddenly they remembered his words. And things began to shift inside of their head and inside of their heart. Jesus said this. He told me it was going to be like this. Now, I'm not going to do this. Maybe you want me to. But I could probably sum up the rest of the sermon by simply saying, that's what you and I need to do over and over and over again in our lives when we're not sure, when the footing is, is shifting, when things are coming against us, when we ourselves have recognized that we betrayed Jesus with something that we did, when the sin that we are committing is so overwhelming, when there's all this stuff that we have to remember what is said in here, that we come back and say, but Jesus said, this is how it is. But Jesus said this. I'd like to today, by the way, just to, just to go to the next part. I told you I'm not going to stop there, even though I could. Uh, we, we're going to dig deeper down. I'm glad that you're, you're willing to dig down deep with me. We're going to dig deeper down because I want to look at, because you know, in every one of those three instances that I pointed out in the book of Mark, 
on Friday night, every one of those instances, we had this interchange. We had Jesus saying, here's where I'm going to go. This is what's going to happen. We had the disciples responding incorrectly about something, and then Jesus said more things. And so I have, I'm going to tie that together by saying, they remembered what Jesus said. Let's take a look this morning. In those, just in those three, we could read all the gospels, but just in those three uh, instances, what did Jesus say right after that moment when they responded incorrectly? They were thinking of the things of men, and he said, let me show you how it, what it looks like to set your mind on the things of God. So let's go back to Mark chapter 8, because that was the first occurrence. That's where I was at Friday night, so we're going to stay in the book of Mark for this. Mark chapter 8, Jesus began to tell them from that point on in verse 31 what's going to happen to him. Peter looks at him and says, uh, he rebukes him, and then uh, as Jesus turns to him, he re- Jesus rebukes Peter back, and he says, get behind me. You're not thinking of the things of men, or of God, but you're thinking of the things of men. And then he calls the crowd with him, uh, to him with his disciples, and this is what he says. Let's remember the words of Jesus this morning. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would want to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake the, and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." These are the words that they were standing there perhaps and being reminded of. These are the words that we ought to be reminded of. In the face of the wrong response, in the face of setting your mind on the things of man instead of God, Jesus begins to correct that and says, here's what it looks like to set your mind on the things of God. And that is to recognize if you want to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself. There can be but one master in your life. It's either going to be Jesus or something else, yourself, Satan, the world. But we should understand, by the way, if we have good theology, we should understand at the root of that, it's yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you'll stand before the throne of God someday and say, it's Satan's fault that I didn't follow you. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross just as he is about to. He just told them that, right? He just said, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and come after me. And he begins to ask them some piercing questions. They should pierce right through us. How much worth can you attribute to your soul? It is eternal. It will never die. It will last forever and ever and ever and ever and every ever as I could ever say beyond that. It will last that long. How much is that worth? What price can you put on that? Is there anything that's more valuable than that? Again, don't, we, we do this so quickly. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't because it, it, it grieves us when we see people we love that are walking away from Jesus. But don't be so quick this morning to just think about other people. Think about your own heart, your own soul. Where are you at? What price can you put on your soul? I can tell you, God puts a very high price on it. He paid with the precious blood of his son for it. What will it gain you if you can get the whole world now but lose your soul? Will you have any gain at the end? 
These questions pierce us because they reveal to us how hard it is to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Because we want the gain of today's world. We want to be recognized and have what the rest of the world says we should have. I tell you, Jesus says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. These are the words Jesus said right after that. And he goes on. The next occurrence is in the chapter 9 of Mark. Again, in verse 31, he begins to tell him that the Son of Man is going to go, and he's going to be handed over. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be given over. And, in fact, he's going to be killed. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. And they didn't understand him. And as they're walking to the next place, they were murmuring on themselves, trying to keep him from hearing. But Jesus, of course, knows. And he gets to their destination. And he says, hey, what were you guys talking about back there? And they say, oh, I don't really want to tell you. But in the end, it comes out that they wanted to talk about who was the greatest among them. Which one of them was doing the best at following Jesus? Maybe that was the, or who was going to have the most, who was the most powerful? Or who was the most effective? Or who knows what end, endless list of questions they were trying to debate about, which one of them was the greatest? And then Jesus said these words right here. Remember the words of Jesus. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. Again, Set your mind on the things of God and not the things of man. For the world says you should make yourself be first. It is better to be first. You want to be at the head of the line. In fact, you do everything you can to be the head of the line. If that means kidding people out of the line or budging or whatever. And then once you're in line, you want to, you want to keep your place. Everything you can. You don't want to let anybody else budge in front of you. None of those things. That's the things, the mind of man. And God says if you want to be first, you must make yourself last of all. Listen, that's exactly what Jesus did, right? He was the firstborn of all creation, except for what did he do? He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he took on the form of man, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. He went to the lowest place. He made himself a servant of all. We're going to read that in just a little bit. He made himself a servant of all. And, if going back to Colossians where I had left off before, to say he was the firstborn of all creation, he is also the firstborn from the dead. So that in all things he might be preeminent. You see how Jesus came to be first? It's because he put himself last. He put himself at the bottom. He did not put himself at the top. Remember the words of Jesus in your life. To set your mind not on the things of God, but the things of man. That if you want to follow him, you have to deny yourself. You have to say no to yourself, to your flesh. You have to pick up your cross and follow him. If you want to be the first, if you want to be there with him, if you want to be the guy who's the greatest, you must make yourself least of all and a servant to all. And he says much the same thing in the next chapter, chapter 10 of Mark. Again, it's the next, next time where he tells them very clearly that I'm going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, we are going to be in some trouble because they're going to hand me over. And when I'm handed over, I'm going to go to the Roman authorities and I'm going to be killed. This is from uh, chapter 10, verse, uh, starting in verse 39. Sorry, just before that. Uh, verse 33 and 34. Because it's right after that in verse 35 where James and John, of course, they're the ones that get the heat this time. They walk up and they say, hey, we have a request for you. Can we sit at the right and left? They make the same mistake. They continue to have their mind set on the things of men, not God. And Jesus has some words for them, but skipping on down to them, he tells them, by the way, you are going to drink of the cup. You are going to suffer. You don't know it yet. 
I think they probably are glad they didn't know it at that point yet because they probably would have ran even further away from when she, when she got to be crucified. But it says on, on down, the others were indignant when they heard about it, and so Jesus called them all together in verse 42, and he says this. He says, you know, and again, he makes it very clear, the difference between men and God. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. You have heard that's what it was like for them. That's the mind of man, that those who are in authority, they exercise it. They take advantage of their ability to rule, but it should not be so among you. And he says almost the exact same thing again. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even the highest, even that one for, by whom and for whom and through whom all things were made, and all, all things hold together, even him came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Before the cross, Jesus kept telling them over and over again, here's where I'm going. You don't expect that because you don't think that the Messiah is going to go to that place. Here's where I'm going. And not only that, if you want to follow me, you have to do the same thing. You see, there's no shortcuts there. It's not that Jesus did it for us, and so now we get to have the high life and enjoy all the power and all the, all the authority that comes with it because he's up there and he did all that for us. That's, he says, no, 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 you follow the same path that I followed. There's no difference. In fact, the book of Hebrews says exactly those words, that he tread a path. He was our chief leader, and he tread a path that we have to follow. We should expect our path to be no different. All of those things he said before he went there, before it happened. And at the resurrection, that morning, the angel said, don't you remember what he said? Actually, if you read the, keep on reading the gospel account in Luke, it goes on that when Jesus meets the two on the way to Emmaus, he says the exact same thing to them. Don't you know what everything was said about me and what I was going to do and where it was going to go? And when they began to understand and they finally recognized it was him, he was gone. But they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when Jesus opened the scriptures to us? When we began to see, we began to remember all the things that Jesus had said when he was before the cross, before he died, and we knew it was true. So here we have to come to a place in our sermon where we have to take it out of the pages of Scripture where Jesus was using angels and was using his own presence in times. We didn't read all that, those things, but it all happened. Where he was using those things to remind his disciples on that day that you have to think differently than what you've been thinking. You were missing it before, but now you see the evidence that I was crucified, I went down, but now I, came, I was brought back to life. You must follow the same path, and you have the same assurances, by the way, that if you go to your death for my sake, then you will also be resurrected as I am. It's time to take it out of those pages and agree with the rest of the New Testament that comes after what Jesus said, that they also looked at what Jesus said about remembering what he had said and looking at and having that guide, that they looked at it the same way and said, that has to guide my life. And recognize that that needs to guide our lives today. Scripture is very clear. We're going to make the case from this point on in. Scripture is very clear that the very same path that Jesus walked is the path that we need to walk. And I'm going to be very clear with you. I'm going to be very upfront with you. It's the path that you need to walk. And I don't know where you're at in that journey. Whether you've ever confessed the name of Jesus and surrendered to him. Or whether you once whether you've done it more than once, whether you've been doing it for years and years. But this morning will be an opportunity for you to just again say, that is the path that I want to choose.
I want to follow Jesus, which means I don't want to hang on to my life. I want to lose my life for his sake that I might gain it, for my soul is worth that. Paul wrote these words in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. I have, now we know Paul was not literally crucified with him, right? So he's talking about how he considers himself. He's talking about how he has said no to his flesh, how he has denied himself and picked up his cross. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm not living anymore. I died, but Christ lives in me. But you've got to get the second part of this verse. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, this verse is powerful. There's a lot, I could probably preach a whole message based on this verse. But what I really want to point out to you is all this whole time we've been focusing on the fact that Jesus was betrayed. He was handed over. He said it was going to happen over and over again. He pointed to it. It shook him to the core. But in the end, he said, listen, go back and remember the words that I said. That's what's going to guide you through to live for me faithfully from now on. And Paul just said, the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I'm still in the flesh. That hasn't changed yet. I'm still here until he comes back. I'm still in this body. So I live it, but I live it by faith now according to the Son of God or by the Son of God who loved me. And look at that last part. Hear this part, please. He gave himself up for me. Guess what word gave is? It's the exact same word as betrayed. It's handed over, given over, paradidomi. You see, this whole time, what looked like to our eyes, our human eyes, this whole time, it looked like he was betrayed. He was handed over by Judas. He was handed over by the disciples. All these things, he was rejected by his own when he came to them. All those things. But this verse makes it clear of something. And you and I should know this. And tuck it deep down inside of us. Jesus did that voluntarily for you and I. He handed himself over. He looked at Pilate and he said, you would have no power over me except that which has been given. And that's the representation of this verse. He gave himself up for you and for me. It's not that it was taken out of his grasp. It's not that he came and thought, maybe I can fix this situation. Surely when God comes, then I can fix this situation and make it all better. And they'll realize how, that we can really all get along and overcome our sin if we just try harder. He said, I came for this purpose. To give myself as a ransom for many. I did not take my, my authority, which he had complete authority. I didn't take my, did not take my authority and said, I'm going to rule it over you. He said, I will be the servant of everybody and give myself as a ransom for many. He gave himself for you. You're alive, what, 2,000 years later after all this happened. But he knew who you were and who you are and what your life was going to be like. We must believe that according to Scripture. Before there was ever a day that happened, it was written about us. And he gave himself for you. That's how you can look at yourself and say, I was crucified with Jesus. And I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I'm still in the flesh, but the life I live is controlled by my faith in him. He loved me. He loved me. And he gave himself up for me. This time I'm going to switch to Philippians Paul wrote these words in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. As he reflected on all the good things he had in his life, all the blessings he was given to start his life, with all the advantages he had in life, he said this, but whatever gain I had, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, worthless, nothing, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and listen to what he says. He got this, the mind of God versus the mind of men. He got this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It takes verse two verses, but that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I may share in his sufferings. Why? I'm willing to deny myself. Why? I'm willing to take up my cross. Why? I'm willing to lose my life. Why? So that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I may follow the path that Jesus was on. Can I say it again and beg of you to let your ears hear it and your heart respond to it? There is no other path. There is no other way. Jesus, think, what, do you, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life? There is no other way. You can't circumvent or shortcut it. You can't say, I'm going to try to hang on to both sides. You have to say, if I want what Jesus has, which is glory in heaven with the Father forever and ever, if I want that, I have to die. I have to die. I have to lay down my life so that I might live in him. Paul further reflects this when he says in Colossians these words. Now here he's saying, I want to attain the resurrection no matter, how, no matter what it takes. So he talked first about, I'm, I'm not, I've crucified with Christ. Now he's saying, I want the resurrection. That, I did that so I could get the resurrection that, that Christ got. And then he says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. If then you have been raised with Christ. He, posed, he picks up on this. If then you've been raised with Christ. Then what? If you have that hope that you followed that path and I'm looking for that day, if that's true, he says, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above. That sounds a lot like Jesus saying, set your mind on God, the things of God, not the things of men. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. Listen, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, will appear, I'm sorry, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you are looking forward to that day, if that's where you're setting your hope, and I'm telling you, that's the only hope you have, by the way. The only hope you and I have is that we are crucified with Christ and that we might through that somehow be raised with Christ just as he was raised and someday appear when he, when he appears that we will be, appear with him in glory. If that's the hope we've set ourselves on, then listen to Paul's words here. You have already died and your life is hidden with Christ. Where is Jesus right now? Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father, right? Do you consider, do I consider that your life is there already? That's where it's at. I think half the time we lose because we don't even think of it that way. We still think of us being stuck down here, trapped in all those things. And we have the, we're still in our flesh, don't get me wrong. There's still a tremendous, tremendous battle. Please don't get me wrong. 
But let's not set our mind on the things of men, but on the things of God. Let's look there. Let's set our mind on those things, for that's where our spirit is at. That's where our life is. True life is in our spirit, by the way. It's there already. His life is here. His spirit is here. You might call that the great exchange, by the way. Someday, when he returns, they'll all be put back together in the right place. Our physical bodies with our lives who are there. But you must have done, Galatians 2.20 first, been crucified with Christ. And Philippians 3, consider everything that you thought was yours as rubbish for the sake of knowing him, that you might die with him and be raised with him so that your life can be hidden there. I can say it no clearer than what Paul said in Romans, and we're going to close with these, this passage from Romans. One of the most powerful passages I can think of based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ on what our response should be, on how we should live our lives, on what effect it should have on us. Now, he just ends chapter 5 by talking about the fact that as the law increased, grace increased even more so that grace might reign through righteousness, that we might have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And then he says this. This is the opening of chapter 6 of Romans. What should we say then? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? <laughs> By no means. Heaven forbid. That's like the strongest phrase the Bible uses about you should never think like that. By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Think of that question. Were you crucified with Christ? Did you want to hide your life in him so that you might attain the resurrection from the dead on that day? Then you have already died. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What a, what a question that just smacks us in the face, doesn't it? Because we do it all the time, don't we? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Don't you know that what, that's what baptism meant? When you went under the water, if you did, or if when you were even poured on, the signification, the symbol of that is you were die, you died with Christ, you were buried with him. Those were the days we just went through. It's Sunday today. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's stop for that verse a little bit. We were buried with him by baptism into death. We must see it that way. We should see our lives that way. We died. I died when I said I want to accept Jesus. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you and I might also walk in newness of life. That our lives are different. We're no longer thinking the things of men. Let me keep reading. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in, death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, think of how many of these words have to do with our minds, by the way. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if you died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. That's what we celebrate. That's the truth of Easter. Remember the words that he said. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. If that's true for Jesus, 
And if you accepted Jesus as your Savior, you placed your faith in him, and you recognize that I'm dying to myself, I'm being buried with him through baptism, and I'm being brought to new life, if all that's true for Jesus, then that next verse must also be true. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There can be no other conclusion. There can be no other end result. Yes, Easter is the life-changing event Jesus coming out of that grave. It's the life-changing event. It's the thing that gives us hope, but it does not do anything for us if it hasn't taken root in our lives. If we do not walk in newness of life, if we don't also consider ourselves dead to that sin that we said we died to. Verse 12 continues. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as, though, as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under law, but under grace is how Paul ends that. The resurrection of Jesus is indeed good news. It is what allows you to have any hope. And I'm not just talking about hope that's coming down the road. I mean, it is. There's a great hope someday when Jesus appears again that we who have hidden our lives with him in Christ will also be, appear with him in glory. Or that if we walk through that threshold of death before that day comes, we have one waiting for us. We have an eternal glory waiting for us. There is a hope that is tremendous. But I gotta tell you this morning that that hope, Paul says, if that's the only hope we have, what miserable, wretched people we are. Because this hope goes, according to these verses, goes far beyond that. I would tell you the only hope that you have that you really can die to yourself. You really can walk the path of servanthood. You really can make yourself the least. You can do everything you can to put yourself on the bottom and to serve everyone else. The hope that you will, in fact, follow the exact same path that Jesus did, which is the path of, of, bring, of being glorified. Now, it's a long path, but the path of being glorified, that you will be resurrected to a new life, that you can say no to those things that want to enslave you, the sin that so easily entraps you. You can say no to them. You can walk away from them. For if you've died, sin no longer has hold on you. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But there is a key Verse 13 of the verses I just read, there is a key. There's an action. You see, all this is about what Jesus has done, and that's how it should be, because he did everything. But there is an action there. Did you notice that? Look at verse 13. What does it say? It says, do not present yourself to sin. Do not present yourself. Do not give yourself as an object for sin, for unrighteousness. But instead, what should you do? Present yourself to God. Present yourself. Let me just read it so I make sure I read it correctly. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, that means your body, you, to God as instruments for righteousness. Not for sin to reign, but for his righteousness to reign in. To be an example of what God can do when we're surrendered to him. Present yourselves. Those are words of action, by the way. Because to present yourself is to put yourself, to place yourself somewhere. 
There's not, a, there's not a direct tie, but think of the words where Jesus said, I gave myself for you. I handed myself up for you. Now, here's the question. How will you, where will you put yourself? We're going to close with prayer and I invite you. Why don't you, I, I'm going to have you all stand. We're going to wrap all this together. I'm going to invite you to stand because it's a lot easier to be mobile and to let your feet obey the spirit of Christ when you're already not sitting in a seat. I'm going to make this very, very, very clear. Okay, if you have not ever received Jesus as your Savior, this morning is the morning to do it. The message we just heard, the, con- the conclusion that we just came to, that's the only hope that you have. That's the only way the hope of Easter means anything in your life. And you should do it this morning. If you've done it before, but you need to do it again this morning, you should do it again this morning. Remember Jesus' words way back in the beginning? Remember his words? He said, anyone who is ashamed of me And my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, I will be ashamed of when I come in my glory. If you've done it a hundred times, if you've done it five times, if you've done it a million times, if you need to do it today, which you and you alone know that because of what the Holy Spirit's telling you, then I ask you to do it. And there's nothing special necessarily about coming up front here, but it is in the context of verse 13 of Romans chapter 6, presenting yourself to God as instruments for righteousness. That sin would no longer be what controls you, but that you're saying, I want God to have control of me. I want my body to be used for righteousness' sake, not for sin. And I'm not going to be ashamed to ask you, if that's where your heart is at this morning, if that's what he's telling you, you are in the most friendly room you are ever going to be to make this kind of decision. These people love you. Everyone here, they love you, and they want you to make the right choices. Please, if that's you today, I'd invite you while I pray here, just come up front. Present yourself to God. Give yourself as an offering to him and say, I want you to do in my life what you want to do. I want to go to the bottom. I want to humble myself first before you, but maybe even in front of other people. For I know that's the path Jesus walked.